everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I was looking in our files and this is our 88th Odyssey House Journal. Unbelievable. I'm Randall Carlisle along with my beautiful co-host Rachel Santizo. Hi. Hi. What in the hell do you have around your neck? So I'm wearing this lovely lay today. I don't have a shirt, but I thought I'd wear this because today I'm taking my clients to the park and I'm really excited about it. So what it means is I'm representing fun and recovery. So that is what I'm representing today. You know, and that's something people need to remember. Obviously going to, to treatment or, or uh, dealing with an addiction is not fun. But, but my biggest thing was learning that you can have fun not being high, you know. Right, exactly. So I think it should be represented. So that is the message for today. Well, it, it's better, it, well, it's a good message. Usually for those of you who just are watching this first time around, Rachel usually wears a t-shirt that has a message of some kind on it. So that's, that's a great message as well. We try to impart a little a little news knowledge here at the beginning of each podcast. And usually it's, you know, usually I cite a survey that's, that's sort of negative, like, you know, opioid deaths are increasing, blah, 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 blah. Here is a positive one. Uh, the number of college age Americans who are choosing not to consume alcohol is increasing. According to a study at the University of Michigan School of Nursing, uh, and they're talking about adults age 18 to 22, which would be college age, and the number of them over the past 10 years that have abstained from drinking, because we all think about, you know, crazy stuff that goes on at college and everything, uh, has increased from 20% to 28% of college age kids, and they don't have to be going to college, but who are, who decided to abstain from drinking. Wow. That's incredible and shocking to me. Like, I have no idea why, do you? Yeah, I, no, it doesn't, it doesn't say why. That's the only problem with, with surveys. But, you know, and that's, you know, when, when my alcoholism really began to get bad, it was back during college because we went out and got drunk every night at the bar. And, and you know, who knows what would have happened had I not done that. Maybe I wouldn't have become, you know, a functional alcoholic for decades. I don't know, it's hard to... It's hard to know. Yeah, I'm excited by those numbers. I'm happy. I mean, my initial response was probably not the best, but I, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know what to say. And we probably won't know if that's happening right now. We probably won't know for years to come whether that decreases the number of, of people dealing with an alcohol uh, use disorder. You know, it's hard to say. So. Right. You have lined up the guest today. Who's our guest? I have. So this gentleman, Sean Ackroyd, I have the pleasure of working with him here at my facility, but I, I wanted him to come share his story and I'll let him um, tell more about himself, but he loves flamingos and he has worked really hard in his life and he just graduated and he has a, an incredibly um, an incredibly courageous story to tell. And so I, it's important for the world to hear. And so I'm so honored that he decided to come on and share his story. So without further ado, Sean Ackroyd. Hello, Sean. There he is. Yes. <laughs> I just started piggyback off Rachel and with the fun and recovery thing. These are my Elton John glasses. 
Yeah, I was going to say that's what I thought they were. I yeah, see a flag over your shoulder. What is uh, what does that signify? I am my I, my my family comes from Canada. I've been in the states long enough to call myself as, as, as a, uh, an American citizen, but uh, my dad was American. But uh, we moved down here when I was 13 years old, and uh, been here since. And I'm the only one in my family who still talks like a Canadian. And so, so how do you say out and about? Out and about. Not out and about. Not out and about. A boot is something you wear on your shoe, on your foot. <laughs> and how about the word S C H E D U L E? I'm a bit Americanized. I'm scheduled. Scheduled, because most Canadians <laughs> say schedule. Schedule. Yep, I've been Americanized. And the, and the other word is G-A-R-A-G-E. Oh, garage. Yeah, yeah. And we say garage. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Well, happy, happy Canada Day. A few weeks. This is we're recording it a day after Canada Day, but it won't come out for a couple of weeks. So happy Canada Day. A couple of weeks. Hey. Where did you get those glasses? We, <laughs> interesting story, actually. We did a, a, a dance for the clients um, last Wednesday um, to announce a, a winner of, it, of the new uh, Medicine, or Odyssey House Meadowbrook um, cheer for Moves Day. It was called the Biker Shuffle. Day. Yes, the Biker Shuffle. Mm -hmm. I slaughtered it, but I had the glasses and worked it really well. And, and, and it goes to, and you know, it, it, people watching may say, that, well, that sounds goofy. But again, it goes back to that having fun uh, mm -hmm. in sobriety, right? I'm sure I look goofy. Well, yes, you do. <laughs> so but you can't have fun. If you, if you take yourself so seriously, you can't have fun but with, with yourself and with your peers and with, with circumstances, then, then recovery is almost, it's almost impossible. Right. So Rachel says you have an amazing story that needs to be told. I have a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, should I just go right into it? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, my story starts out long before I started using drugs, long before I started drinking alcohol. Uh, my story, it starts with this weird feeling that I was never really right, that I wasn't correct, that I wasn't, I was never comfortable with my own skin. Um, a lot of that started out when I was three years old and my parents got divorced. Um, you know, back in those days, you know, divorce was just starting to really take root and really popping off and people just getting divorced left and right. By the way, I talk really fast. You should have heard me on meth. It was worse. <laughs> um, but um, I'm one of those kids who took that divorce of my parents the wrong way. It was all my fault. It was on me. My dad left me. I woke up one day, my dad wasn't there, and I had no idea why. All I know is that he was a very angry man. Um, he did a lot. He was, he was abusive to me and my, and my brother and my mom, and I was scared to death of him. And so since he was always angry with me, it was my fault that he left. Um, and I took that to heart. I never really expressed that to much to anybody, but it's, you know, it just, it's just the way I felt for most of my life growing up. Which would be a normal feeling for kids of divorce, right? Yeah, yeah. I think especially when you come from somebody who's been physically and mentally abusive to you, who's always angry with you and you don't know why, um, then waking up one day and them gone, it, and it's... Gosh, he hated me enough that he had to leave. Yeah. He abandoned me. You know, especially when you're that young of an age, that impressionable of an age, that's, that's the first thought that we sure. form, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I'm just quitting smoking again, so I'm having the problem with the, uh, this stuff. 
It made your body <laughs> adjust to becoming normal and healthy again, right? Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, so um, fast forward to a few years down the road, you know, it was, um, I knew from, like I say, I was never really right in my own skin, never really comfortable. I never felt like I was, I fit into people with people around me. And I grew up in Southern Alberta, Southern Alberta and Southern Utah, um, both very, very religious, very Mormon communities, very, um, very cowboy, very man as a man, da, 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 da. But I knew that I was gay. I knew that I was attracted to men. And that's something I had to hide about myself. So I had these, this thing, two things going against me already. My dad hated me and I was gay and nobody liked it. People really were gay. And I remember one time when I was younger, my uncle, my, my, my uh, cousin asked his dad, my uncle, what homo meant because homo was on the like whole milk cartons in Canada. And his dad looked at him very seriously and said, homos are the most evil and wicked people in the world. And you heard him say that? I heard him say that. How'd that make you feel? I was very evil and wicked. Right? That's I took that to heart. You know, and I had that this co-signed on all me? the feelings you already felt. That just co-signed on all the feelings you were already feeling. Yeah, yeah. I was worthless. Yeah. And that, you know, and I grew up knowing that I was worthless, evil and vile, and unlovable. And not comfortable in my own skin. So, you know, and I didn't really start. You know, my, like I said, my addiction took on, took root a little bit later in life, but I had, was struggling with these problems my whole life. Um, I went on a mission for the church, um, got back, and uh, about a year and a half later, I was, I was excommunicated from the church. And then once again, I was unlovable, unwanted, unworthy, and these things kept piling up on each other. You excommunicated um, because you were gay? Or? Excommunicated because, not just because I was gay, because I liked sex. Ah. Right, so I, I I engaged in sexual relations with the with the same sex and went back to my bishop and, and, and confessed about it the week the day after each time. <laughs> so, because I had this incredible guilt complex as well. Oh my God, I'm gay. I just had sex. I've got to confess. Well, at least you were honest. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't know if it was because I was honest or because I was too afraid of, of damnation and being judged by God um, for being gay and engaging. And knowing that, you know, this incredible guilt complex, I've got to talk to somebody because that's what I was taught to do. You know, you go to the bishop, you confess your sins and you're, and you're forgiven. Um, so I do that on a, <laughs> at least a monthly basis. <laughs> and after about a year of that, my, my, uh, my, my bishop said, well, we're going to have a church hearing for you. A church, uh, what do they call it? Like a case conference we have here. Um, anyways, uh, like a, a hearing. Bishop, um, I didn't go to that. Pardon me? Bishop's Court? or what? Yes, yes, that one, yeah. Something like that. I'm not even Mormon, and I, I've, I've heard that before. So. <laughs> Is that well, what yeah, it's really I, called? Pardon me? Is that what it's really called? I think it's called the Bishop's Court or Church, church Court. Okay. Oh, okay. I think. I might be wrong again. Um, I didn't go to that because I knew what they were going to do. I knew what they were going to talk about, and I was uncomfortable talking about it because I was just uncomfortable in general. And... Um, I got a letter from the state president the day after while I was at work saying that I had been excommunicated from the church. And it was really a really weird sensation. I felt really relieved. I felt like, it should, like a, a big weight had been lifted off my shoulders because I no longer had to live up to something that I couldn't live up to. You know, I, I never really had a belief in, in, in God, in church. I tried really, really hard to fit in. Because that was what I did. I didn't fit in anywhere, so I had to find something that I could fit in and fake it until you make it, which never really worked for me either. Um, 
so when I was excommunicated from the church and my, I was engaged at the time and uh, that broke off and um, she, she let slip to, well, I'm sure she told it on purpose. She told a couple of my friends that I was excommunicated because I was gay and uh, lost all my friends. So once again, mm-hmm. abandoned, alienated. And this was in a small city in, in, Southern, in Southern Utah, Cedar City, going to school at uh, SUU. So everybody knew, right? And um, yeah, so I had to outrun that for a couple of years. Um, tried to get back on the straight horse and nobody could tell that I was gay. Good luck. Then I started drinking. Um, I joined a fraternity and started drinking in the fraternity. And um, that worked for a little bit, right? It, was, it made me feel like I belonged. It made me feel like I was secure in something because I was drinking with other people and I was in this fraternity with these people who were supposed to be my friends. And they were, they were good, they were good guys. They were really good guys. Um, but, you know, I, it, it, the whole fake it till you make it thing is like a, a life thing for me. I, I, I had to fake it to, to fit in because I didn't feel comfortable again. Um, coming out. Um, I came out when I was 28 years old, moved to Salt Lake. Um, and that was kind of a, whoo, here I am. Um, I'm gay, going to the gay bars, getting drunk more. And I, I binge, started, started binge drinking really hard <clears throat> for a year and a half. Um, I didn't like alcohol. I hated alcohol. And I was too scared to try drugs at the time. So I just, I binge drink. I'd wake up the next morning, I'd throw up, I'd, I'd be sick for a day and, and start over the next day. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I come back in the closet when we moved to Logan to go back to school because I wanted to fit in again. It, it's, it's my life story is fitting in. You know, it just is that need, that desire for connection and never having it. And, and always feeling like I just, I was an outsider. Um, well, fast forward to the next few years. Um, when I was about 40 years old in 2010, it was about 2009, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Um, And my mom and I were best friends. You know, she was the one who made me feel like I fit in somewhere. You know, she she knew how to how to make me feel like I I was important. And she was probably the only person I believed when she told me that I was important and I was loved. Um, In 2010, on July 25th, 2010 at 2.25 p.m., my mom died of cancer. And uh, that date and, and time of day, I don't know why I looked at the clock. When she died, but I did, and it's just it's it's etched into my brain forever. I'll never forget that day and that time, um, <clears throat> and that's when my world fell apart. That was when I lost the only person who I believed who could make me feel whole to a certain extent, um, and and you know I, I did the whole grief. I tried doing the whole grieving thing, but I did. I don't know if I did it wrong. Um, <clears throat> six months after that, my grandma died, and I was really close with her. She's my mom's replacement. I had her for six months. And then six months after that, I lost my job. Um, I, is, I was in the working in landscape architecture in the commercial sector. And that's when that tank or that the commercial sector just crashed that market. <coughs> Excuse me. And six months later, I lost my dad. Jeez. So it was a, it was a hectic two years for me. I never had time to really mourn for any of those losses. Um, I, all I knew was that things weren't right. I didn't feel right again and I, nothing could make me feel right. And so I, I turned first to what I turned to when I was in college and wanted to fit in with sex. Um, so I had this, I, I, 
I never really admitted to having sexual addiction, but I could probably say I was addicted to sex. Um, I, I made that um, that odd connect, well, not connection, but I made this assumption, I guess, a belief, a core belief that that having sex with somebody made that connection with with another human being. I think that's kind of where I where I I went with that because it, it felt good for about five minutes to an hour. And uh, I made a connection with somebody and that, that somebody wanted to be, somebody liked me, somebody thought I was attractive, somebody wanted to be with me, even for a short period of time. But then that whole after fact, the come down uh, of that, and uh, I felt horrible again. And I was on looking for the next person to have sex with. Um, so that went on for a little while. And then in one of these random sexual encounters, um, I happened to run into somebody who partied, uh, used meth. And uh, he was one of those, <laughs> I have this thing, I, people who, guys who I'm really attracted to and women who, or again, anyways, anybody you're really attracted to, stupid hot, right? They're so hot that you're stupid, <laughs> right? Yeah. And um, this guy was so hot that I was stupid, right? So uh, he was, um, he told me he was partying. I had no idea what that was. I said, he said it was drugs. And I said, I don't want to use drugs. I just want to have sex. So we went over to his place and he, like I say, so what, they're stupid. He said, he looks like you're, I was asking him questions about it, you know, I was, I was curious. And he, uh, he uh, said, sound like you're interested, you want to give it a try? And I said, sure, anything <laughs> you want, anything you want. And uh, so my first use of, uh, of meth was IV. Wow. And, yeah, yeah. And when I, when I, when I hit that, um, I had arrived, I was whole. That's the only thing that made me feel like I was a whole human being and meth became the love of my life. Um, there was nothing, I didn't think of anything else after that night. Um, all I wanted was more meth. So you were instantly hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I, my job, my job performance suffered. Um, I, I was selling cars at the time and uh, I went from top five salesman to bottom. Um, in, in one month, you know, the, the stats after over a month. And I, it, I stayed at the bottom for six months and then they fired me. Um, but all I thought about for that six months was more meth and I found ways and means to get more. Um, I started making, you know, the connections. I started making friends. Um, I got a dealer finally, um, constant, a consistent dealer for a while for the, that would supply me as much as I wanted, as much as I could afford. And I used meth. Um, I uh, had my ha I owned a house at the time, and I didn't leave the house except to buy groceries that I probably wasn't going to eat, <laughs> right? Because right? I was just too busy doing meth, and I spent most of my time in the basement, um, using and and having sex, because that was the best connection I've ever had, right? It was it was sex, and it was the love of my life, meth. So I was connected. I was feeling good about my world because I had everything I needed at the time. So I thought. Ended up losing my house um, the following summer and going into rehab. This was in 2012 that I started using meth. No, 2013 that I started using meth. Um, lost my house in 2015 um, and went to rehab in up in up in the Pines. It was called up in uh, Heber City. It's called Wasatch Ridge now, I think. Um, that did not work well. Um, I was still very addicted. I was still very in, in the addiction survival mindset where I had to control everything, didn't trust anybody. 
And so I ran, I ran their program. As you can imagine, that doesn't work very well for anybody. Um, I, was, I was running the show. I didn't go to any groups. I, I, I did whatever I could to fuck off, pardon me, to um, just goof off and, and go out and smoke cigarettes the whole time and, and help out anywhere else, it, do anything but treatment. Right? I was there just to get sober for a little while as a, as a means to an end. Um, I did a month up there, left for a week because I had a job opportunity I had I, really what that was was uh, a lot of money from selling my house and uh, so I've got a hotel room for a week at a good hotel because I'm bougie like that <laughs> <laughs> and went through about a half um, a half ounce of uh, meth in a week um, and you know just went back to it had sex and meth the whole time didn't leave the hotel room except maybe once or twice to get something to eat. Called him up a week later, said, this is not working for me. I've got to come back because I was running out of money and couldn't afford the hotel room anymore. So insurance paid for another month of treatment, which I ran the program, didn't do any treatment and just screwed off the whole time. Um, ended up leaving to go to sober living where I thought where I was somewhat on track and um, lasted sober living for two days and called a buddy to come pick me up and was off to the races again. This went on for another two years. I had, I had you know, successes were getting jobs and stayed at the job for a year. Well, not a year. Well, six months, I got a job at JJ Nursery. I moved up to Layton. And um, I don't know how I kept the job because I was using on, on the job. Right? I go into the bathroom and I, and I shoot up. Um, and people would wonder what's wrong with Sean. When he's just, sorry, I got a text message. I'm going to turn my phone off. <laughs> He was wondering what's wrong with Sean when he's, you know, he's, he's calm and, and maybe a little sluggish in, in, in when he gets to work and the next thing you know, he's bouncing off the walls. But that was normal to me. That was, that was nobody could tell. That was normal. Um, lasted there for about six months, got a job waiting on tables at Marie Callender's up in Layton. I lasted there for a year and a half, but only because the manager was my friend. Um, but I lied my teeth off, lied my ass off about my using. Then I'd, I'd use in the bathroom again. You know, I'd go in the bathroom, come on shifts, go use, come back out, and I was good. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I noticed when I was using meth that was really hard for me was, well, that didn't, I guess I didn't really notice until after the fact, was my temper was really bad. You know, I'm usually a pretty nice guy. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty, pretty mellow and, and try to get along. And I'm kind of conflict avoidant. I'm the opposite when I'm on meth. You, you get in my face, you do me wrong, and I'm going to let you know. And I don't, I let you know in very uncertain, no, in no uncertain terms. Um, and it happened, let me rewind a little bit, tell this story. Cause when I, before I went to rehab, um, I was at a hotel in, in Midbelt and uh, had somebody over in the hotel room we were using and he invited a, a, a trans woman, trans male to female, right? Over to my hotel room, which I had no idea. And when I found out, I said, no, uninvited. That's not my thing. I'm, I'm 100% gay. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, anyways, five minutes later, this, this trans girl, this trans woman shows up at my door in my hotel room and I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. So I let her in. Next, you know, she pulls a knife on me, says, give me your drugs. I laughed. <laughs> you know, I, I laughed. It's all I could do is, you know, I just just sat there and you, what are you going to do? Stab me? The hotel saw you come in. They know you're here. You're not going to get away with it. She put the knife away. Anyways, long story short, she put, she grabbed my computer and, and took off out of the room. Um, 
I got mad at that. I wasn't going to let that happen. That was my computer. That's how I looked up porn. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, so I chased her out of the, uh, of the hotel on this. We were on the second floor and she went out the outside door onto the outside stairs. And as she went out, I lunged for her for my computer. And as she, I lunged for her and grabbed it, she somehow tore down my hands and broke my thumb. And I saw red. And my first thought was shove this person down the stairs and kill her. And so I shoved as hard as I could. I shoved as hard as I could. And uh, thank God that she, her heel caught in the stairs and she caught the rail. Um, Cause I would have been a manslaughter at least. Sure. Right. Um, that scared me to death. That's one of the things. And then the night, last time I got fired from my job, um, the last job I got fired from was, was because of my temper. Um, it was a stupid little thing. I was mildly late and the girl and the manager made a small comment, which wasn't, wasn't mean or derogatory, but I wasn't having it. And uh, I let her know, and like I say, know in certain terms that she was a, a bitch. And I, um, you know, I knew more about this job than she did. And da 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 da. And she was an assistant manager, because I and I thought I could get away with that because I was friends with the manager. <laughs> I got fired the day after. Honestly, um, it's interesting because a lot of this stuff, like the first time that I tried heroin, I used the needle too, right? And like the temper and everything that you're explaining, we have a couple minutes left. Everything. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going on forever. No, it's okay because you could talk forever and we could listen forever, right? But everything you're explaining is completely opposite of who you are today. So tell us like what you're doing and where you're at today. Yeah. Um, because and everything you've said is absolutely incredible, right? It's built you up and I'm so proud of you of all the things you were before and all the things you are now because it's you. Where are you at today? Today. Today, um, I have 34 months clean. I'm coming up on three years in, in, August, in August 18th. That'll be my, that's my sober date. Um, today I'm working at Odyssey House. Um, I just got my SUD certificates and I'm now counseling. Um, addicts um, that are like me, that have some of the same experiences that uh, I can relate to. And I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my experience with them, um, not so much my experience, but sharing my knowledge with them of, of, of addiction, I guess. Um, and life is different. Life is, it's better. I, I finally fit into my own skin. Um, you, you know, it's, part of me. How did you get clean? I, it was in 2018, um, in August, April of 2018, um, I ran out of money. I was getting kicked out of my apartments um, and I had nowhere to go. So I called a buddy um, just to see if I could get a place on his couch in St. George for a little while while I got back on my feet, changed geography, right? And it turned out he worked for Renaissance Ranch ah. down in St. George. And he said, Sean, get your ass down here. I'll get you in sober living. We'll get you in treatment. And I went down there just that's where it was my last thing I could do. So it was the last opportunity I had. He got me in Lionsgate down there. I spent five months in there um, learning about me, learning about why um, I wasn't, you know, the, all the attempts that I tried to get sober, to get clean, didn't work were because I, I thought recovery was just about abstinence. Um, it turns out the recovery is about taking care of the things up here and the things in here that made me think that drugs were the solution, that drugs were my connection. The meth was the love of my life when it really wasn't. Um, I learned that, you know, the abandonment issues experienced as a kid, not feeling, fitting in as, as a normal human being among a bunch of straight people when I'm gay, that all those things, you know, I, I, I do fit in. I can fit in and I can be me and not have to change who I am to fit in. <clears throat> because, and if people don't like me, that's okay. 
It's okay. We run into people we don't like every day and that's okay. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm less worthy, that I'm unlovable, that I'm not worthy of, 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 of respect. And, and, and gosh, what else can I say there? Um, yeah, just that, I, that I'm worthy, that I'm enough. Um, that's, that was the biggest hurdle for me to get over is to realize that I am enough just the way that I am. Um, and, and when I learned that, and I don't have to, when I learned that I didn't have to be change myself for other people, I can learn to love myself. And once I started loving myself, I can love other people. And that's when recovery took hold. Wow. What a story. What a story. And what a, what a fine example. I mean, people don't understand, you know, people on the, in treatment centers, they have a lot of people in recovery working in treatment centers because they can relate to the other people who are seeking recovery. And people on the outside don't understand that really. But, uh, you know, having you share a story like that with somebody who is new to recovery is like, you know, mind altering. Yeah, you know, it, it, I think the fact that I can relate on some level to most people, um, I, it helps a lot. I, I, I'd like to be able to relate to more, you know, gay men and women, but we don't get a lot of those in here. So I, I don't get to share that experience and strength and hope with them. Um, but, it, you know, it still translates, you know, recovery is recovery. Um, it's, 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 it's available to everybody. Um, regardless of your of, of sexual identity or, or anything else. Yeah, the, um, the feelings the feelings you talked about, I went through many of the same feelings and I'm not gay, but I still didn't feel I was good enough and I feel and, and I got angry and I with alcohol as opposed to meth, but everything seems and Rachel said the same thing with heroin. So it's like a it doesn't really matter whether you're gay or straight yeah. or what kind of drug you use, we all share the same experience. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. We, we all go through the same shit. Or crap. Right. Do, you, do you bleed? No. <laughs> You're okay. Speak your language. Wait. Uh, don't, don't tell me that. I talk like a sailor. <laughs> we all go through the same experiences. That, that's, that's the key. And that's, the, that's the, the base of recovery, the foundation of recovery, is realizing not only that you have a problem, that you're not unique. That we can share some of the same hope, strength, um, strength and hope um, based on some of the similar experiences that we have that that you're not worse or less worthy because you committed more crimes than I did or I'm not less worthy in recovery because I wasn't as bad as you right you're right hey thank you for sharing your story I hope it makes a difference to somebody who's watching I appreciate you you know the 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 overriding story that we hear from almost everyone is that while you're in your using phase, whatever it is, you don't love yourself. And, and the key is learning to love yourself. So, you, you know, uh, and you've obviously come a long way and done it when you express it so well. Good, good selection for a guest, Rachel. Thank you. I know I, I'm really happy and I'm super proud. I get to see Sean every day and I, I watched him through this school struggle and graduate. And so I'm just so super proud of him. And so the the honor I get to see him every day. And um, I just, I, I love this part of it. I was, I was speaking to our clients because there, there's tragedy, right? Like in our population, there's tragedy and there are miracles. And so Sean's been one of those miracles lately for me. And so I 
I'm honoring him today and I'm honored that he's been on here. And the flamingos, he has this flamingo thing and it's cute and so I'm grateful for it. Because <laughs> he makes me smile. <laughs> it's, it's a dead plant right now. It, it died, but it's a, it's a flamingo. <laughs> well, on behalf of the flamingo, Sean and Rachel, uh, we thank you very much for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.